All right. So this is a, uh, I guess this is our third uh, attempt at a podcast. Uh, so today I have with me uh, Connor. Uh, we have uh, today a coffee from Costa Rica. I'll uh, run over some rote details of that coffee. Um, this coffee is a honey processed coffee. This coffee is a yellow honey processed coffee. So for those of you playing at home, there are a couple of different colors for honey processed coffee. And I think all of those colors will slightly be different depending on the environment the coffee is processed in. So uh, essentially the cherry is picked, it's pulped, and there is some level of mucilage left around the bean that has to be processed and essentially gotten rid of before it can make it stateside and we can roast it and serve it. So the yellow process is the closest uh, honey process to a washed coffee. So it is the lightest. So it means that most of them, after it's pulped, most of the mucilage disappears. And so it's going to taste, in my opinion, closest to if this coffee was pulped, processed, and washed compared to like red or black where more of the mucilage stays on the bean and therefore you get this more fermenty forward note to the coffee, sort of more natural-esque. And this particular coffee, I don't get a lot of natural characters to the cup. But before we get into the flavor notes, uh, just a couple of details on this coffee. So this coffee... Um, is uh, from Siri Sur, Costa Rica. I'm sure I totally screwed up the pronunciation. Um, but for geography-wise, if you've ever been to Costa Rica, you've probably flown into San Jose. So this uh, area or region is northwest of San Jose, but it is still central, but it's a little bit off-center, more towards the Pacific side. So Costa Rica borders both the Caribbean side and the Pacific side. So this is in the middle, but closer to the Pacific side. Um, and more north of, of uh, San Jose, which is trending towards Nicaragua, but not very close to that border. Um, the family farm, or the, the I guess it's a couple, uh, but uh, I don't think I have her name, but his name is Carlos Barrantes. Um, for those of you in St. Louis, uh, this farm is about 3,000 miles away from St. Louis. I Google, I Google mapped it, and uh, yeah, it's a long drive. So it's about the length of, of the United States. Um, this farm was uh, founded in the early 2000s. Um, it actually, this farm, this family, it actually consists of five small farms, and between the five farms, it produces about 300 bags of coffee a year. And their main focus is on these alternative process, either honey, the various different colors, ye yellow, red, black, or full naturals. And so when, uh, this is something I didn't really know about until I traveled to Oregon, but when it says five small farms, what that really means is, is that you can't kind of... Uh, in all cases buy land that's contiguous and then just expand your farm because you have to have certain microclimates, certain altitudes, things like that, and just availability. So what they're buying is, is are small parcels associated in a certain region or area. So they're not big by any, any stretch of the imagination. It just means that they're not contiguous. It's not 
five farms bordering each other. It's five separate small farms that may be like a mountain or hillside over. Um, they, also a little unusual, they employ the same 45 pickers every year. Wow. From Panama. So I guess they keep in touch. So they're migrant workers, but they keep in touch year-round. If you believe the materials that we've gotten from uh, Cafe Imports, um, they're like family uh, to, to uh, Carlos and his family. Um, they are... You know, since they are producing such a small number of bags, they are pretty um, meticulous. And an interesting fact is for the drying area, which are usually uh, either drying patios made of cement, they could be a tarp, they could be brick, they could, but they make people uh, cover their shoes or take their shoes off to keep that drying area clean. So it's more like a... A CPU processing plant than you know this kind of more casual thing when you see people drying coffee and they're just walking on the top of it. Um, this farm was the first farm in this region to get uh, SL28. Um, so this farm um, they like to experiment with different varietals. This particular varietal for the coffee we're going to talk about today is a Villa uh, Sarchi. Sometimes not always um, the most sought-after varietal, but I think when you, you know, grow it thoughtfully and then do some sort of uh, alternative processing, it, it elevates the cup. Um, the elevation for this is about 1,500 meters above sea level. So I think that's all the details on the cup. And again, we source this this uh, cup from uh, Cafe Imports, um, and that's it. So now I want to uh, introduce. Connor, have him introduce himself, give you a little history about uh, where he's been and how he got into coffee. Um, Connor, welcome. Thanks. Um, so like Scott said, I'm Connor. Um, I've probably been drinking coffee before I could walk. Uh, my parents would always, we would sit out on the porch and I would enjoy my glass of milk out of my little Winnie the Pooh mug and dad would come and pour a little bit of coffee into my mug. So I, I was started pretty early in my coffee drinking experience. Um, as you kind of grew older and as third wave coffee became more prevalent, um, I got to actually travel to Origin and Honduras and see in action, more or less, farmers and how they live their lives and the full kind of coffee story as it kind of came to light. And that's something I, I, had, I was ignorant of. I did not know really how much work went into coffee and what it took to really get it from farm to the States. So it was a, a educational experience, which kind of led me down to this path where I am now at Sump. Um, fell in love, and I've been drinking good coffee ever since. So two questions. Uh, Winnie the Pooh cup still in existence? Hopefully. Oh, you don't know where it is? Uh, it's, it's in, in my storage. mom's cupboard somewhere. It's in so a museum? The family museum? The family museum. Part of the family crest now? Maybe maybe at a Goodwill somewhere if they did a purge. And did uh, did you have the little sippy lid on it? Or were you no, just no open sippy rim? Lid. I oh, very trusting very as a adult. child. Lost that trust eventually through like high school. but uh... Awesome. All right, so uh, this coffee. So um, we brewed this coffee very similar to how we brew all our coffees. So this was actually brewed using the pour study as a V60 
with numbers that were that are 25 grams of coffee to 350 grams of water with a 50 gram bloom and about a two and a half minute brew time. So I would say, uh, you know, we've been talking for I don't know, five to ten minutes. Uh, we brewed this cup before we started this, so this coffee is is come off several degrees from its brew temp. So for me on the aromatics, um, I get um, a little what I'm going to call black tea. There's a little. I, I, it's weird to say I smell astringency. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a facial cleaner, but uh, I smell that kind of black tea dryness, um, kind of sweetness. I've been nursing mine for a minute. Mine's cooled off a bit, probably a bit closer to room temperature. So a lot of the aroma for me has Gone. kind of died off a bit. This is something that um, I did not inherently um, consider uh, getting into coffee or even think about for a long time. But... Um, the hotter the coffee is, the more likely you are to get some sort of aromatic, mm-hmm. some sort of smell, and the cooler it gets, uh, that just disappears. Yep. So if you ever want to get um, an understanding of what your coffee smells like, you know, smell it after you grind it first thing, and then also start taking in the aromatics as close to the brew temp as possible. That was something I never really thought about because I'm usually more concerned about tasting it, mm-hmm. but uh, it is true that the aromatics fade. I will definitely say just the experience of grinding the coffee in the shop on a daily basis, um, the yellow honey aspect of it, The if you smell a fully natural coffee, you're almost immediately aware that it's fully natural. Well, with, with this yellow honey is in the taste, it's, it's a bit subtle, but in the ground coffee, you can immediately tell that it's an alternatively processed. Yeah. Yeah, I would say this coffee, for us, again, and a lot of how we buy coffee and bring coffee into the shop is, um, it's, it's just very personal, really. Um, I would say we bring a lot of Costa Rica in, but it's never a fully washed coffee. We're mostly, most of the Costa Ricas we've brought in over the last several years have been some sort of alternative processed coffee because I think I'm, I'm not just natively a fan of Costa Rican coffee. It's solid, it's subtle, but it's, it. you know, I guess I'm trying to find a little more wow. Mm-hmm. And so the alternative processing creates that wow. And this is closer to what I would consider a classic Costa Rican profile. There's, you know, sometimes I can get a little nuttiness. This is like, I don't want to call it diner coffee, but it's like an elevated... Um, kind of fine dining coffee. It Definitely seems like it, comfortable. Yeah, it's comfortable. Um, I had it a couple of times uh, today in anticipation of uh, of doing this, and it is a it is a more com- comfortable coffee. It is a more comfortable presentation. To borrow your words, it's definitely more accessible. Uh, I tried this side by side with the Congo we also have in here, and that coffee uh, next to this coffee just super popped Mm -hmm. and the acidity was just amazing and this is this almost felt like it was dark roasted even though it's not it's a first crack coffee but the different side by side until you equilibrate equilibrate your palate um is heavier Mm -hmm. absolutely so maybe for me even on the finish um has like a molasses sort of sweetness to where like almost does 
a dessert. Not a, you know, not ice cream sundae, but... Yeah. Not like refined sugar, but like a darker sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a bit of... Again, it's it's not... There is there is some brightness as it cools. There's some dryness, that astringency that I convinced I, I smelled is um, kind of whiny to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the that alternative processing comes in. Especially as it's warmer. That's yeah. Right off, right off the brew, I believe, the whininess for me comes yeah. through a bit. So whiny, for me, when I say that means something red, a little tannic, with a little tartness, like a, a wine sometimes where you can feel the fruit come through. Is that kind of what yeah, you're Yeah, on the palate for me, you know, you're, you're mentioned dryness. When I think red wine, I think dry. Yeah, Not so, in all cases, so more like a, a bigger cab than, say, a Merlot or a Chianti mm-hmm. kind of red. Um, I would say the weight on this is... On the heavier side, I think of, of what we typically what we typically um, well compared to the Reiko. Yeah, I would say you know we have several on the bar right now that are all comparable between Congo, Ethiopia, the light-bodied floral sweet. And while this one might be closer in comparison to the we have a Colombia on yeah. the bar right now as yeah. well that maybe a little bit bigger bodied, maybe a little bit more complex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is um, this is this is for me drinking this coffee to pull out all the notes in the cup. I I, ref- I feel like requires a little more concentration. They sometimes uh, they're not just jumping out and distracting me in the middle of a conversation. It requires some meditative aspect of this of, of, of the cup. You definitely have to be thoughtful while drinking it. Or it's, it's a very easy cup to just kind of throw back and next thing you know you're, you're out of coffee. You're comfortable. It's right. familiar. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's got a good sweetness, I feel like. That, maybe that darker sugar, that molassesy aspect of the cup. I am glad that we got to do the Costa Rica. I've been probably drinking this one in the shop. As I come in, it's usually my first cup as I grab it. Yeah. It, it is definitely a good uh, a good morning coffee, I would say. It's a good all-arounder. Um, outside of that, I mean, um, I, don't, I don't know that we can belabor t- too much or, or get too much out of, out of this. Uh, I think if we look at what Cafe Imports put together in terms of their offering form for this, we've... They've got uh, savory, floral, smooth. I would agree with smooth. Toffee, molassesy, maybe not as caramely as toffee. Balanced, I would agree with balanced. Tart is. It depends on where what temperature it is to find Absolutely. the tartness. I think. Um, I don't get a lot of savoriness out of it. If I do get savoriness, sometimes it's in the aromatics. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely gr- the ground, the dry, dry, yeah. the dry smell, savory. I would almost say that we did brew it as a cold brew maybe once or twice. And yeah. I think as I was driving around and the ice melted, I had noticed that it was as a as an iced coffee, as everything melted, savoriness did come through a bit. Yeah. But um, definitely more of the the, wa- or the, the yellow honey aspect yeah. over in the, the Kyoto trip definitely made itself more apparent. But not, not as savory as this yeah. Cafe Imports might think. <laughs> Well, you know, there's like, there's like seven people that, that cup this coffee and come up with these notes, so they probably all have to earn their keep. Uh, 
All right, well, I think we've covered this coffee pretty pretty well. Um, for me, this, this is a good coffee. Um, it's a little bit more for, for me, I guess, uh, a placeholder as we wait for the full natural Perla Negra uh, Las Lajas that we get every year, um, which should hit us uh, this week, and then we'll be roasting it up in the subsequent weeks. Um, so that's going to be... That's going to be a statement coffee. It's the Rogue One. So yes. New this is, yes, this is the Rogue One. This is a prequel, a little bit, the warmer up. But uh, as in all these uh, little conversations, um, we like to transition into something else that's not necessarily about this particular coffee or about some sort of cross we have to bear in coffee. Uh, and since uh, we have Connor here today... We're going to talk a little bit about specialty drinks uh, because he just put uh, a pretty exceptional specialty drink on the menu that we're going to try and rock through the summer. Um, so I think he has some. Uh, I think you have some some deep seated feelings <laughs> on specialty drinks. I do too, honestly. But it's cold. I mean, it's hot outside, so people need something cold. So you have to. You have to. I feel like you have to offer something that's a little bit more than just. Uh, a cold brewed coffee absolutely and so this is our opportunity um we like to try and i feel like when we do create these drinks we like to try and keep them as simple and as straightforward as possible i would say that this one fits that category but it is a little bit more sort of mixology or a little more exotic for us but i will i will turn it over to you and let you tell us about your love of specialty drinks <laughs> and how you came up with this coffee this uh this drink so in terms of specialty drinks, I think my first introduction into maybe the, the coffee cocktail sort of combination was seeing um, some of the barista competitors online kind of go through their routine, and at the end of competition, everyone had to make their specialty drink. And for me, my experience in coffee has always been finding something unique and something that, that can really stick in your brain for a while. And to me, a specialty drink almost felt like a blend in a way to where you would find something that wasn't of highest quality, but you would add all of this to it to kind of make it pop and exceptional. And as I would watch these barista competitors really work their magic and really do their thing, some of the ingredients they pull out I had never even heard of. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you start with a shot of Columbia, just off the top of my head, and then combine all of these ingredients and come up with a drink? Mm -hmm. And every single one, there was no similarities between any of them. And it always was just mind-blowing to me that these judges can try them, and it's, I bet it's a wonderful experience, but if I was to walk into their shop and order your green tea rinsed, mm -hmm. whatever, uh, what does it actually taste like? What is that actually doing? What is the actual purpose of this? So it is summertime. Yeah. Uh, the purpose of the cold fashion is to be refreshing and delightful during the day before, say, happy hour. Mm -hmm. So developing a specialty drink for me has always been difficult because you try to you see these competitors at the height the height of their career, you know, winning with something that I, I can't even pronounce half the ingredients. How do I, as a barista, come up with something equally as unique and equally as spectacular, but kind of tone it down a bit? Yeah. So I borrowed straight from a drink that I drink more often than I probably should. We have a lot of good friends in the bar industry here in St. Louis. And so I sat down with um, the bar manager at Taste, 
and I talked with him about my favorite drinks. And I would say I'm probably a whiskey guy. I enjoy the earthiness from whiskey. I think there's a lot of crossover in whiskey and in coffee. There's some, some similarities. And so I had asked him, if he was to build a cocktail, how, where do you start? And, yeah. he, and he had told me, you know, you start with your base spirit, and you kind of just know what works with that. So if I'm going to start with a whiskey, you need to, you know, maybe balance out the earthiness with a little bit of sweetness, maybe highlight some of that earthiness as well with maybe some bitters, uh, and then also add a little fruit element, you know, kind of grab from all, um, all of your taste, you know, like sour, sweet, mm-hmm. and then really kind of bring it together so it's a cohesive drink. And at that point, you know, he started going into ingredients and everything, and I was like, all right, you know, that's very, you know, it was informative and it was helpful, but I still felt like I've become a daytime bartender, mm. and I didn't want to be a bartender. Right. I, I want to serve coffee, and I want to showcase more so that the farmer's effort than my own. Mm-hmm. So with the cold-fashioned, uh, if you look up a recipe for an old-fashioned, which is whiskey, this drink here is almost identical, except it is age-appropriate, and there is no alcohol involved. Yeah, or now, very little. Very little. There are, there are bitters in the drinks here, so yeah. I guess not technically alcohol. Yeah. But um, the one key ingredient in an old-fashioned is citrus. And to be able to make a drink in a cafe setting where you're rimming the glass with an orange peel or you're adding cherries, that'll really slow you down, especially on a Saturday morning when mm-hmm. it's chaotic. Mm-hmm. And so to have a consistent, thoughtful drink, I had to come up with a way to more or less include that citrus element without it being up to each individual barista on how to actually go about it. So I created, I created, I, I made a lime simple syrup. I just, you know, one part sugar, one part water, zested a lime, and I let it more or less soak as I made a drink with that lime. And I made my drink, finished the drink, strained all of the lime from the simple syrup, which now is imparted into the, the syrup, and you can get that citrus aspect mm-hmm. without having to sit there and cut up a fruit, right. mix it all up. So that, that was my process, was just to hopefully create something that's easy to make in the shop, mm-hmm. tasteful, and consistent. Well, I think you've achieved that. So I think, just to go back a little bit, um, the drink, which we didn't announce, which you told what, everyone what it is, but it's a, it's a play on the old-fashioned, mm-hmm. and we're calling it a cold-fashioned, or you're calling it a cold-fashioned. Um, and and it's, it's got a good mouthfeel, it's got good weight, um, it's delicious, it's refreshing. Uh, I do tend to think uh, akin to you, I guess, a little bit about specialty drinks. I feel like in coffee, um, we're trying to, or in specialty coffee, we're trying to prove this proposition that coffee is special mm-hmm. and that it's worth this um, extra expense. I mean, the reality is, I mean, you saw how much work goes into a farm when you travel to Honduras. The reality is, is that, you know, coffee kind of is a luxury and it shouldn't be viewed as a commodity, especially when it is uh, being produced at a very high level. Again, like this particular Costa Rica that we're drinking here, this is a family farm, very small. They're producing about 360 or 69 kilogram bags a year. So, and they're doing it meticulously. So, um, and, you know, they can only do that if they get compensated for what that bag is actually worth. And so when you start taking these coffees and you start to add things on top of them, you, you, you start to hide, in my opinion, in a lot of instances, whether this is a Villa Sarchi or SL28 or it's you know, grown in Costa Rica or it's 
honey process, yellow, red, or otherwise, um, how long the fermentation is, you, you start to strip that away because you're putting sugar, you're, you're putting things that start to cover up those subtleties, and that takes away from, in my opinion, this, this whole idea of what we're trying to prove in the first place, or what, maybe not we're trying to prove, but what we're experiencing, and that's why we're in it. We're not, it's not like we're trying to prove this proposition to ourselves and others. We're experiencing it, and we want to share that. And when you start to make these cocktails, um, they are good in their own right, mm -hmm. and not, not to be discounted, but they take away from using something special like this, uh, and you know what this family is doing during their growing season and kind of hiding it and covering it up. And the other thing I wanted to say is in these barista competitions where people are making specialty drinks and you, and you, you suggested that they're probably all very delicious, I would suggest that they are probably not very delicious, that most of them are probably wretched. No offense. It's just because it's, it's, it's the nature of the beast, so everyone who competes has to make one. And not, not every coffee or espresso shot, in my opinion, deserves to be concocted with, you know, 11 other ingredients. So uh, I bet there are a lot of really bad specialty <laughs> drinks that the judges have to suffer through. But I think it does get you thinking about the, co the coffee and what's in the coffee. Because as you said, you're trying to build something based on the foundation or framework that the coffee offers. So you as an individual, as the barista making these specialty drinks, you're building something that perhaps is complementary to these elements, and you're not really just mixing stuff in mm -hmm. and seeing if you can make a volcano out of it. You know, or just, just It's really not this bizarre science experiment. You're getting in tune with this coffee, kind of a little bit like what we're trying to do here, and articulate what we think we see in it, and what we, what, and then discover what might be complementary to it, and then put those elements in it. And it's definitely not an easy task. I don't think it's an easy task. I don't. I'm never really envious of specialty drinks. I'm never covetous of specialty drinks. I feel like it's definitely something you have to offer in the hotter months, just because. You know, I can do it, but I understand why someone doesn't want a hot cup of coffee at one o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. Um, so, but I think what you came together, uh, it balanced a lot of things, you know, in an ideal world, if you could create this sort of mixology setup and put all these elements in it, we, you were tasked with being a little bit more pragmatic and not making compromises, but, but, but finding ways to find efficiencies mm -hmm. to make the drink so it still was of a high quality, but it was, it was done in fewer steps. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've done um, is pretty clever. Thanks. <laughs> and and not, not only clever, I mean, you know, I think the ultimate test on everything and anything is how it tastes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I don't want to say it's like candy because that gives this impression that it's sweet, mm -hmm. but it is, it is easily, you could easily consume many. Like maybe you were talking about how you can just easily down several old fashions. It's just, it's just kind of, it, it has that presentation. I was going to say that's probably the one downside of the drink is that it is cocktail size, probably about a five ounce drink. But unlike a cocktail where you have to sip or else you'll kind of singe the, you know, your taste buds. Yeah. This is crushable. You can throw it back pretty easily. Super crushable. So yeah. they don't last long. Yeah. But on the, the candied aspect of it, if you were to taste just the simple syrup, it is reminiscent of like cereal. It tastes like, um, 
Trix cereal. You know, fruity, sugary. Trix. Trix cereal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think I think we've we've uh, we've covered everything. I want to thank you for spending uh, a couple of extra minutes today after you worked the full shift. Um, I think uh, it's worth coming by if you're in St. Louis to check out the uh, cold fashion and uh, and say hi to Connor. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you.